Um, we are going to continue our series on community, and we've been talking the last few weeks or so about authentic biblical community, and I want to continue that thread this morning, and I'm going to start by reading a scripture out of the book of Mark. Um, most of the time when we read the scripture I'm about to read, we think about the miracle that Jesus performed, or we, or we think about you know, the desperation of these folks that ripped a roof off uh, the place to get to Jesus, but I want to think about this in context of community, because this story involves a paralyzed man and the friends that brought him to Jesus. I mean, you could say that this story we're about to read here is a story of a crowded house, some roof crashers, and a fellowship of the mat. And before I read the story, that phrase, which I'll use quite a bit, um, the fellowship of the mat, uh, it's a phrase that's borrowed from a guy named John Ortberg, who I've been quoting heavily the last few weeks, partially because I think he's particularly brilliant and insightful when it comes to these thoughts on Christian community and has heavily shaped my thinking. So, uh, the fellowship of the mat, Mark chapter 2 on the screen, here we go. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered there that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man, another phrase word Jesus used to describe who he was, the Son of Man, that you may know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. And now he turns to the paralytic and says, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So in our time together this morning, uh, what I want to do is look back here and look through this story a little bit and just kind of wander and wonder our way through and, and, and look at this man, the paralytic, and his friends. Now, first of all, again, as we try to just imagine what his life was like, just try to imagine what life was like for the paralytic back in the ancient world. This whole man's life had been lived on what was probably a three-foot by six-foot mat. When he would have been a kid uh, and the other children were out playing, then he would have to just sit there and watch. Uh, Every time he's hungry, somebody has to feed him uh, or clothe him or clean him when he soils himself. If he wants to go somewhere, someone has to pick him up and carry him there. And back in that day, there's not much that could have been done medically. There weren't surgeries or rehab programs or treatment centers. And so anyone in this man's condition would have to go through life as a beggar. They'd be most of the time just laid by the side of the road and be dependent on people dropping coins beside them just so he can live another day. So he probably has no money, no job, no influence, probably not much of a family, um, and definitely thought he had no kind of future. 
But this guy does have one thing going for him. He's got something really good. He has friends. I mean, he's amazing friends. Ortberg says he is in one of the killer small groups of all time. And this story takes place primarily because of his friends. Because without his friends, he never makes it to Jesus. He never gets forgiven. He never gets healed. So again, for this crippled guy, think about his context, his story. These friendships probably didn't just kind of happen randomly. Especially because of his disability, the deck was stacked against him actually having any friends. Um, Even in our day, people who wrestle with physical challenges, um, they often say that, that, that the most difficult obstacles that they face are the attitudes of so-called able-bodied people uh, who are sometimes kind of anxious about how to respond, sometimes they're unkind, sometimes just look away and avoid eye contact. Um, back then, uh, think about it, and today, both then and today, this is a fast-paced world, right? And, and it's not a very gracious place for people who can't run as fast and keep up with the rest of the society. So it's bad enough today, but the ancient world could actually be even harsher. Just a little history stuff here. The Greeks, they regularly disposed of newborn infants that had any kind of physical anomalies, just disposed of them. Um, In Rome, in the 5th century BC, there was actually a statute on the books that said, quickly kill a deformed child. And even in Israel, right, there was often this assumption that if they saw someone that was suffering physically, they had brought it on themselves. There's another New Testament story where the disciples are talking to Jesus, and they actually ask Jesus, hey, uh, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I mean, it just shows there was this really bad theology that assumed that if somebody was disabled, it must be that, well, somebody did something wrong, and so they're being punished, either them or their parents. And by the way, we won't go into it, but Jesus really upended that whole uh, mindset. But nevertheless, here's this guy in that culture, that kind of world, and somehow he's got a little posse of of friends, and they refuse to let any kind of obstacles stop them. And here's what I think has got to be key about his situation. Their little group couldn't have come about just by accident. Like, it just didn't happen. Like, they had to overcome all these obstacles, inconveniences, social stigma, financial pressure, lots of time and energy. These guys had to have chosen to become friends. And the truth then and today is that people rarely drift into deep friendships or deep community. Uh, the last few weeks, we've been looking and read uh, Acts chapter 2, and, and we've read that several times, but there's a statement in there that talks about and describes what the early church was like, and they were speaking about people's oneness of heart and mind, and the writer says they met together, how often? Daily. I know, we hesitate, well, what? what that kind of daily is what it said, Daily. They worshiped together, ate together, prayed together on a daily basis. I mean, no wonder they grew so close. And I think that one of our problems today in our culture is how we see that great Christian community and we attempt to replicate that first century community on a 21st century timetable. And uh, it just, it doesn't work. 
Some of the uh, experts, scores of experts in our day agree that probably the single biggest barrier to deep connectedness for most of us is simply the pace of our lives. Like, honestly, like how often do you hear or say, hey, wow, we got to get together soon, right? Or, hey, let's do lunch in a few weeks when everything slows down. Or when we ask each other, hey, how you doing? What's the answer? I'm busy, busy. I'm fine as one, yeah. I'm fine or I'm busy. That's the two defaults, isn't it? Wow, everything's going, oh, wow, we're really, really busy. I mean, it's just, it's, I'm, there's no shame here. I'm just acknowledging what we, what we have. Um, a psychologist named Alan McGinnis says, the requirement for true intimacy is unhurried time. So if you think you can fit deep community, he says, into the cracks of an overloaded schedule, think again. Wise people do not try to microwave friendship, parenting, or marriage. And then this phrase, he says, you can't do community in a hurry. Right? Like You can't listen to somebody else in a hurry, can you? You can't mourn with someone who's mourning or rejoice with somebody who's rejoicing when we're in a hurry. It just can't be done. And you can't carry somebody else's mat in a hurry. And by the way, everybody has a mat. See, we all have brokenness in our lives, parts of us that are messed up. Last week I talked about our as-is tag. Um, we are all irregular, like everybody's normal until you get to know them, right? That's the, the great truth. And this week I just want to point out, hey, let, let's just acknowledge the truth, especially as we're moving toward deeper biblical community together. We all come with a mat. And it's a very vulnerable thing to have somebody else carry your mat. Like when somebody gets to carry your mat, they see you in your weakness. But wherever human beings love and accept and serve each other in the face of weakness or need, that's the fellowship of the mat. And let me say it again, here's the truth about all of us. Everybody has a mat. Now, now I want to use this mat as a metaphor of human brokenness and imperfection. It's, it's what's not normal about me. It's, it's the thing that we call a little is, as-is tag, the as-is tag that I really want to hide from people. But it is only, only when we allow others to see our mat that, that healing becomes possible because then we can give and receive from each other. Like, like uh, every good support group, every Alcoholics Anonymous meeting is a fellowship of the mat. So are healthy churches and, and families, because everybody has a mat. And um, maybe your mat is, is a raging temper, or fear, or an inability to trust. Maybe it's this need to be in control. Maybe your mat involves like a really terrible secret of something awful that you did that you still feel guilty about. Uh, maybe your mat is a crushing sense of inadequacy or failure or loneliness. Maybe it's depression or anxiety. Maybe it's resentment uh, or shame that keeps you from letting anybody close to you. Um, and, and, and we'd rather hide, wouldn't we? When we look at our mat, but true, authentic, biblical community, uh, real relationships are made up of people who accept and forgive each other. 
people who are vulnerable with each other. If you want a deep friendship, you can't always be the strong one. You can't always be the one helping everybody else. You're going to have to allow people to carry you as well. And sometimes you're going to have to let somebody else carry your mat. And that's what happens in this, in this Bible story here, right? There's really good friends. They're living in true community. And, and I like to just imagine what their scenario looked like. I mean, think about this. Here they are way back in a couple thousand years ago, and, and they hear that Jesus is coming to their town, right? And so these, at least these four men, if not more, find out about this, and naturally they want to see this famous traveling teaching rabbi. One of them probably says something like, hey, hey guys, listen, we can't just go ourselves. We got to get our buddy there. This could really encourage him, and, and hey, what if, what if these things that we're hearing about Jesus, what if they're true? Like, maybe Jesus really can heal our friend. Wouldn't that be something? Like, we got to get him there. And to do that, they all knew right away. They would have known, okay, that's going to make things a little harder logistically than if we just show up. But they don't just think about themselves. They're thinking about him, right? Friends do that. Friends look for ways to love and serve each other. And so they swing by and, you know, pick up their friend, literally, (laughs) like pick him up. And they take him. And then we get to the house, again, I'm just kind of imagining how this all played out here, but they get to the house where Jesus is teaching. Suddenly they go, oh man, this is like standing room only. Like scripture said, there was no room left, not even outside the door. It's like, the, oh man, Jesus is so close, so close, but they just can't get through to him. And these guys probably hadn't counted on this. They had been so excited, but for a moment they probably thought, Oh man, we are totally shut out on this one. But one of the troublemakers, I mean creative thinkers, I like to call us creative thinkers, Um, he's probably similar to my son and myself here, Um, he comes up with an idea and he says, hey, what if we do this? What if we like make a hole and lower him through the roof? And the other guys had to look around themselves and scratch their head and say, all right, this is a little unorthodox, but um, they're desperate to get him to Jesus. And so they decided they're not going to let anything get in their way because of their hope in Jesus and their love for their friend. And this guy's friends here, these guys have got to wonder, like, okay, if we do this, how's Jesus going to respond to our little unconventional plan, right? I know from experience that we teachers and preachers, we get a little touchy about interruptions and, you know, distractions, right? And they cut us a little slack. I mean, come on, Jesus himself, he didn't show up and do his teaching ministry on earth while there's cell phones like we have to deal with today while we're speaking, right? Jesus was smart enough to come. Has anybody's cell phone ever gone off here? It's been amazing. This is three weeks in a row, no cell phones. I'll call you in a second. We'll be, all right. So here they go, right? Just imagine this scene um, and, and picture maybe the house back then. Uh, they would have had steps that would go outside the house, steps that would go up to the roof so you could sleep outside on a hot, hot day, a hot night. And, and so they would have carried this man up those steps and suddenly they start digging. There's mud and sticks and, and hay and they start taking it apart. And can you imagine, what about the homeowner, right? <laughs> so this is your house and all of a sudden your house is getting disassembled and you're going, what, what, what is going on here? Um, 
There's, there's dust and dirt and thatched stuff that's just falling. Who knows, maybe somebody got hit by a clump of something. And somebody probably ran outside to try to get up there and stop these guys like, hey, what are you doing? You can't do this. You're wrecking the house. And again, as I imagine this scene unfold, I imagine Jesus at some point had to have stopped speaking. <laughs> just looked up, right? And, and, and what is it? say here, the text says an amazing thing. He sees the faces of the four friends and and the text says when Jesus saw their faith. When Jesus saw their faith, right? They dug this hole in the roof. They send in their friend. There's no record of these guys saying anything. See, you see, it's, it's not what Jesus heard that moved his heart. It's what he saw and what he saw, it said, was their faith. And again, I'm playing this out like, okay, so what did, so you saw their faith. What does that mean? What did he see when he looked up? Okay, so he would have seen a big hole in the ceiling and there's four faces that are sweaty and dusty and anxious and hopeful and they're just thinking about their friend and trusting that somehow um, Jesus is going to respond. That's what he sees. He, he, he sees a group here. These guys, as he looks up at them, he sees this group that possesses an irrational commitment to the well-being of one of its members. That's what he sees when he looks up. Um, I think Jesus sees when he looks at them, he sees what God intended when he made human beings. He, He sees people who love in spite of brokenness, in spite of shame. And I think Jesus is looking at that going, this has got to be humanity at its finest. Yeah. And when he sees all that, he sees their, their faith. And then I just imagine kind of the movie unfold and Jesus looks down at this twisted, motionless body on the mat. And he doesn't just see a broken body, but as if uh, with each one of us as well, he sees a broken, hurting soul. And because he's Jesus, I know that he speaks tenderly, right? Son, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) Now, right here, like if I'm the guy, like on the mat there, I'd be like, hey there, Jesus, I didn't really sign up to have my sins discussed in front of everybody, you know? Like, uh, be okay if we just skip right past that. Um, But, again, I think about this even, and That's one of the things that happen when you get in deep community, right? In deep community with with Jesus, in the fellowship of the mat, we do find our sin being talked about. We don't find it talked about behind our back when we're not there. But what we find talked about is that we're reminded by our brothers and sisters that we are forgiven. Like our brothers and sisters say, your sins are forgiven. That thing you struggle with that keeps coming up and we know it because we love you and we're around you and we're not going to shame you, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. That's what a fellowship of the mat does. And, and so Jesus is filling the desires of these friends of this guy even deeper than they realized. Because when somebody's your friend, your greatest desire for them, more than just their physical health, is that things are right between them and God. And if somebody is my friend, their deepest concern is the well-being of my heart, of my soul. And so this man, like, he's been mocked and judged and shamed by his culture and the people around him. People who assumed that his damaged body indicated that he was spiritually inferior. 
But this man is told by Jesus, hey, you are clean. You are forgiven. You are right with God. Now, there's some other things going on as we kind of picture the room. There's some other people in the room, and it mentions one group, um, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, the people who were thought of and thought of themselves as spiritual giants. And apparently, you know, it doesn't look like they were late, right? They arrived on time. They got good seats. But it doesn't say that they had any friends that they brought to Jesus. Maybe they were supposed to be the spiritual ones. But maybe they didn't know anybody that needed some time with Jesus. Maybe they didn't know anybody that was hurting or confused or at least would admit it in front of them. And I think there's an important implication to this. And it's this. It is simply impossible to love the Father without without also sharing his heart for people. Um, I have been in some church and religious circles different times in my life uh, where, to be honest, there were people who thought they were becoming more spiritual because they attended many church services and watched many preachers on television or memorized many Bible verses. They were doing all the activities and not doing the bad stuff, uh, but their hearts for people, from what I could tell and heard talked about and watched, uh, their hearts for people, especially people who were far from God, their hearts for, for the lost, their hearts for the searching, their hearts for people with bad habits, uh, their hearts got a little harder and colder and more judgmental year after year. And you know, what's really messed up about that kind of scenario is not that just that that stuff happens. It's that those folks thought that they were growing spiritually, right? They would see themselves as mature Christians who were concerned about holiness, and that would disguise then or excuse their lack of embrace for those who were hurting and broken or didn't look like them or didn't believe like them or didn't vote like them. We are the Christian ones, the spiritual ones. But the truth is, the more spiritually mature we become, the more you will find your heart drawn towards people. It's not that you'll be reading your Bible more. You might be, right? That's not the marker. Your heart will be drawn toward people. You will want to reach out to people, especially those neglected by society or far from God. And this was the condition of the teachers of the law that sat there listening to Jesus in the room. They didn't have anybody to bring to Jesus. They didn't have any love for the paralyzed man who needed Jesus' touch. But what's amazing is Jesus is concerned for his critics there as well. (laughs) Not, Not just the paralyzed guy. Jesus loves his critics as well. And so as this man's coming through the ceiling, these guys are outraged once Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, but he wants them to at least have the opportunity to see that they too can put their trust in him. And so he turns to the man on the mat and says, get up, take your mat, and go home. The room had to be silent, right? Everybody's watching. The man stands up. (laughs) He lifts his mat off the ground. He folds it up like he has spent his whole life on that thing. And suddenly, never again. Never again. His whole world has enlarged, right? He's been this world of, you know, three feet by six feet, 
And now his world has been enlarged to as far as his feet can carry him. Not only his body has been healed, but his heart has been healed. His, his soul, every sin has been forgiven. I mean, physically and spiritually, he's the healthiest guy in the room right there. And it's the fellowship of the map. A couple of things I want to mention about this um, as it applies to me and you, to us. First question for us, whose mat are you carrying? Whose mat are you carrying? And, and I don't mean for you to, you know, single-handedly try to carry other people, because I do think we do this also, we do this in community. Like it says it took at least four guys, it would have taken at least two to carry a mat. But it takes more than one person to help carry your brother or sister who's struggling. And if you're the only buddy that's walking with someone, don't, don't abandon them. It's uh, exhausting, though. And, and just know that if you're the only one helping somebody, it can lead to codependency and a, a savior complex. So right now even, just start thinking about, about and praying for others that will come and help you uh, to come around the person that you're carrying. Because uh, we're not intended to carry people on our own, right? Um, and no one stands alone. And nobody's intended to carry others on their own, which I think is a good thing, because when I'm the guy that's on the mat, when I'm the one that's needy, I don't want to wear my friends out. So it's good to know that there's a group of friends that, that, that I can turn to and not be afraid, oh, I'm really overwhelming that one other person. And when I'm on the other side of it, where I'm helping carry someone else's mat, it helps if there's more than one of us in the mix of loving and serving our brother or sister in need. So again, that question, whose mat are you carrying? Second, um, we all need to be carried sometimes. We all need others to help us. So who are you allowing, who are you trusting to carry your mat? That first one, we sound really noble, really. That second one is a little scary sometimes. In fact, some of us, we can kind of look and see, oh, yeah, I can see what that person's mat is, right? We even think maybe, oh, hey, I've got the spiritual gift of mat identification when it comes to other people, right? And we do that, and, you know, but then we never reveal our own. Um, and when we do that, and we all do it from time to time, when we do that kind of thing, our primary goal is to hide our brokenness, from others around us. And if we do that kind of stuff long enough, you get really good at hiding your mat. You even could get good at convincing everybody of, of your strength, but you will not live in authentic biblical community. You'll just end up wearing a mask. So let me meddle a little bit, because you know, uh, this is my third week and then Paul's back and I'll be out of town for a few weeks, so I'll, <clears throat> I'll take the risk here. I'll meddle just a little bit. Um, uh, who, who carries your mat? I want you to think about this this week. Who carries your mat for you? Let me get specific. Who do you show your weaknesses and struggles to? Who do you ask to pray for you when you need prayer? And not just the, I have an unspoken request, so if you pray for me. Well, that's fine sometimes, but you know, not all the time. Like, who do you allow to pray for you when you need prayer? Who do you let see your brokenness? Who do you let see your hurts and pains, your disappointments, your struggles, your failures? Um, again, hear me. If you want a deep friendship, you can't always be the strong one. You will sometimes have to let somebody else carry your mat. You have a mat, 
and I do too. We don't like to admit it, but we all have brokenness in our lives and we need others to carry us sometimes. Sometimes we need them to carry us for a long time. But so often we don't want to let other people help us out. We want to be the strong one. Or something happens and we go, well, yeah, yeah, that was really, that was really hard. That was a struggle. But, you know, it's much worse for Bob over there. And so, you know, it's way worse for him. Don't worry about me. I'll be fine. Listen, in true, authentic Christian community, you are both on the mat and carrying someone else's mat. Okay? It's both. And sometimes you're doing both at the same time. But the fellowship of the mat is where healing and wholeness happens. And people who find their way to a fellowship of the mat will never live without it again. Now, probably every seminary preaching class or every uh, <coughs> speech class would say, hey, this is a great place. Stop the sermon. Wrap it up. Get him out of here. Um, that would be really fun, but this ain't a seminary class, and, and uh, that wasn't a speech. Um, and this week, I had a, a strong sense that as I, actually Monday, like boom, I had a real strong sense that I need to go ahead, and I am going to go a little long, worry, not, not an hour, don't worry. Um, but before we move to communion, that, that I needed to tell you part of my story, give you a snapshot of just part of my story. Um, Last time I think I preached this message was in 2010, but that phrase, the fellowship of the mat, that has carried strong meaning for me since about 2003 or 2004. Um, rewind a little further than 2003 and 4, I moved here to Arizona with my wife, and back then our son was uh, one year old, Noah. We served at a church that used to be called Word of Grace over in Mesa. And at the time, Word of Grace was a very large church, and I was on the pastoral and, and leadership staff, and they gave me some great ministry opportunities and a lot of creativity to be able to experiment, trying to reach folks who weren't being reached by the, the church, primarily folks in their 20s and 30s, uh, people that hadn't really connected with church or had, but then they were disillusioned or frustrated. And one of our primary focuses in that ministry was this whole community thing, building community, which is, again, why this past few weeks I've been so excited and passionate about this, about authentic biblical community. We didn't do it perfectly, and I made lots of mistakes along the way. Um, I've got friends in the room that can tell you that. <laughs> um, but uh, there were lots of deficiencies in me as a leader. There were, you know, failures and arrogance that popped up. Like, my as-is tag was obvious to everybody, even when I totally couldn't see it, you know. Funny how that works. Um, we left that church about 11 years ago. And what's cool, something cool, the fruit of that is that hardly a month goes by that I don't run into somebody who looks back at that ministry that we called the gathering, that community. And I can't tell you how many times people have said, wow, that was the greatest church experience I ever had. Like, I didn't realize it at the time, but, but, but that was unlike anything I've ever experienced before then or since. And for a lot of those folks, some of their primary friendship groups are still the people that they built community with back then. But one of the reasons that we transitioned out of that, uh, working at a large church, was the desire, I've talked about a number of times, uh, to build authentic Christian biblical community. And as I said a couple weeks ago, it's difficult to build those kinds of relationships at large churches. Not impossible, it's very difficult. So we swung the pendulum probably a little too far the other way and did like an organic, very small um, church community. 
And one of the great things about that is that those friendships and relationships ran very deep. The reality of the fellowship of the mat that I've been talking about, it was life-changing for us. And as I said, I delivered that, that, that sermon, the one, this one I just did, um, using that phrase stolen from John Orberg, the fellowship of the mat, uh, in 2010. And the fellowship of the mat is real, my friends. I'm so honored by my friends who allowed me to carry their mat, that have trusted me with their as-is tag, with their own brokenness and weakness, friends who haven't faked it or hid or worn masks around me, people who have been authentic and vulnerable. And those people have carried my mat as well. But in 2010, when I last spoke this message, I had no idea what was about to happen in my life. Um, I had no idea just how badly I was going to need some of my own mat carriers. And because of time, I'll, I'll spare you most of the details. Um, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 28, <clears throat> makes this really romantic statement. He says, if you marry, you will have trouble. <laughs> right? What a hopeless romantic. Don't you love reading that verse? I'm just waiting for some couple someday to ask me to use that verse for their wedding, right? They never read that. They never read that verse. At a, it's okay. The courtesy laugh's okay. You guys, just help me feel a little better here, all right? Everybody's nervous about what I'm going to say. Um, if you marry, you'll have trouble. And the Greek word for trouble is thlipsis, and that's where our root word for friction comes from. So he's saying, if you marry, you will have friction. Like, hey, Paul, you're a genius. Thank you, Captain Obvious. That is so good, right? Now, that friction in any relationship, it's a good thing. At least it can be. That friction will help us transform, and it'll shape our rough edges, and it'll make us more like Jesus if, if if we let it. Because as you know, many folks, many of us, we don't cooperate with the process. And those rough edges can also cause us to get angry and bitter and resentful, and that resentment can turn into contempt or hatred, and once it gets there, it's very dangerous. Throw in a dash of depression, dysfunctional family systems, unresolved wounds from childhood, disordered sexual relationships, or unfaithfulness, and you have a recipe for disaster. And by the way, even with all of those elements, a marriage can make it, but both parties have to be willing. And I'm a huge believer in, in counseling, and our marriage had struggled off and on for the 17 years that we'd been together up to that point. I lost track somewhere at like six or seven therapists, and eventually they all got fired, um, mostly when they got too close to the actual problem. There was an unwillingness to look at the deepest issues. And in 2010, I felt this growing distance and coldness that had been building for some time, but we never pretended like everything was fine. Uh, we were honest about our struggle, and I think that's a good thing. Um, and honestly, for me, I just naively believed that just like in the past, rough seasons we'd come, but we'd find a way to get through this we always had. Um, but we came to our worst point, and we were actually just about to launch a new church plant in Gilbert, and something between us just exploded, and I had no idea why at the time. Um, I found out later, but, but at that point, I'd just been clueless. And again, much longer story to be told here, and I know myself enough to know that I can't tell this completely objectively. Um, but I stepped out of church ministry 
we temporarily moved back home to Minnesota for one of the best therapists in the country. Uh, we actually spent um, five months and over $20,000 in intensive counseling just to try to save our marriage and family. Uh, but in the end of the five months, she dropped out of the counseling process and um, decided that she was done. And I was, I was crushed. We moved back to Arizona, and for the next year, I did everything I could to fight for our marriage, do everything I could to look for reconciliation or a chance to begin again, but she'd made up her mind there was no changing it, so we separated and began divorce proceedings, and about a year later, we were divorced. A little spoiler alert here for anybody who's met um, my wife Heidi, that was not Heidi, okay? <laughs> so uh, that wasn't Heidi, that's not our story, and so people go, oh wow, they you know, that story doesn't have the ending that most people hope for in a sermon. Like, wait, wait, he got divorced, but then they worked it out, right? Nope, nope. Uh, sorry if that's what you were hoping for. I mean, I hoped for that for a long, long time, but it's real life. I got uh, divorced. It was horrible. Um, I never, ever, ever thought that would happen, but it did. And just in case you're curious, Heidi and I met... Uh, a few years ago at work um, at a ministry that she's still working at, Food for the Hungry. And um, uh, we were friends for two years before we ever dated, and we were, engaged, we were dated for over a year, and we've been uh, married now for almost a year and a half, and our story is really fantastic. I'll tell you that some other time. So, But the point of the story that I've just pulled you through is this. The fellowship of the mat is what carried me through. And I had no idea just how badly I needed it. Like I knew before my divorce that I was benefiting from, from the fellowship of the mat because I could be myself. I, I, I could be free to struggle and admit it to my friends. I was free to admit when I was depressed or anxious or had fear or self-doubt. I could confess to them my shortcomings as a, a husband and a father and a pastor and all my struggles. And they gave me grace, amazing grace. But when I went through divorce and then the aftermath of recovery, that fellowship of the mat continued to carry me. There's friends right here up here in the room that were a part of that fellowship of the mat. And, and my parents, my sweet mom right there next to my dad, uh, they were amazing. My siblings and their spouses, so many people. I mean, you list the amount of people and you go, you must have had a gigantic mat to carry, kid. But, and, which is true. It was um, and because of those friends and family, that fellowship of the mat, I experienced the love and grace of God, especially the inner circle handful of people. Today now, I'm in this place where I'm finally ready to do what I thought I would never have the opportunity to do again, to love and serve in a church context in a pastoral role. And Heidi and I are still in the process of figuring out, you know, we're in that adventure phase. We're trying to figure out when and where, but thanks to this fellowship of the mat and for the beautiful gift of God um, and my sweet wife, Heidi, that's where God's taking us now. All right, I'm way over. Let me wrap up. Hopefully, you will never have to go through that kind of pain. But statistically, right, some of you have, and perhaps some more of you will. And whether it's the loss of relationship or the loss of a loved one, some disease, some illness, financial loss, job loss, depression, feeling stuck, uh, prodigal children, prodigal spouses, or just daily life, we all need a fellowship of the mat. 
And two quick things that I learned from going through this. Number one, don't wait till your life falls apart to start looking for who those people are. Like if it's built ahead of the storm, you'll be way ahead in dealing with a crisis when it comes. So, so engage that fellowship of the mat before you're the one going, ah, I need somebody to carry me. Um, and the second thing is, and I wanna repeat this as I get ready here to pray, uh, if you want deep, biblical, authentic community and relationships, you can't always be the strong one. <laughs> Not only are you gonna have to be willing to carry someone else's mat, you're gonna have to be willing to let people carry your mat as well. And again, sometimes you do both at the same time, on the same day, which is a beautiful thing. Because if you walk with a limp like I do, it's nice to remember God doesn't wait for us to be completely healed before allowing us to love and serve and minister to others. So take those questions with you this week. Who are your mat carriers? And whose mat are you carrying? We're gonna move for communion now, so if Ryan and the squad would come this way. As we move into um, receiving communion, which Ryan's gonna facilitate here, it just occurs to me that as you take the bread, which is the body of Christ, I want you to think about what Jesus calls us all together. We are the body of Christ as well. And so as you take the body and receive the body of Christ, think about this fellowship, this community that we're a part of, and, and allow him even to speak to your heart and places where you'll say, yes, Jesus, I, I want to be loving and serving. Show me if there's some specific people that I can begin to help carry. And, and if you're kind of doing Lone Ranger right now, just say, yes, Jesus, yeah. I do. I want to trust others to help me, to carry me as well. Jesus, thank you that you're with us. And now as we move toward um, communion and this celebration and this receiving, uh, we're grateful in Jesus' name.